I'm going to have you go ahead and have a seat uh, here for just a moment. Um, we've got a lot that we're going to try to cover as we open up Isaiah chapter 6 together this morning, picking up where we left off um, last week. But I, I woke up this morning just feeling uh, uniquely burdened for a few situations for the church, both here at home and abroad. And so what we're going to do here in just a couple of moments is just enter into a, a period of intercessory prayer um, for the church here at home and also the church globally. And we're going to focus our prayer on a few distinct areas. Um, let me tell you what I've heard from members of our own congregation, from other members within the community, uh, particularly those who are in the healthcare system right now, and uh, those who are teachers, those who are school administrators, business owners. We've got a lot of folks in our own church family and in this community who are absolutely overwhelmed from everything that's happened over the last 18 months. Healthcare workers, frontline workers in particular, uh, men have just, have just shared with us over and over and over again how worn to the bone that they are. Uh, many of us have largely forgotten them. We've kind of picked up and moved on with life and not realized that some of them are dealing with the worst of all of this that they've had to deal with in the last 18 months. And uh, they're just having to deal with lots of noise on top of the very difficult work that they're already doing. Uh, we have a church here in the United States that's very fractured right now, fractured politically and ideologically, um, sometimes over completely non-essential secondary issues uh, at a time when the world most needs to see the united front of the church boldly carrying out the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, many of us are doubling down on nonsensical things to cause and stir up more division. And so uh, we're gonna pray repentance that the Lord would grant us to that as the body of Christ here in the United States so that we can faithfully carry out the work of the Great Commission. And all of that should be in perspective because um, if you've seen probably different news sources and things that have emerged over the last couple days, there's now stories emerging out of Afghanistan of followers of Jesus Christ who meet in house churches and they're waking up and they're finding notes on their door from the Taliban, letting them know, we know who you are, we know what you're doing and we're coming after you. So I just want to, to let that sit in, you know, whatever secondary things we love to, to spend all of our attention on is you and I this morning gather together freely and publicly uh, to openly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have brothers and sisters across the world who are doing or trying to do the exact same thing, but they're doing it under the threat of their lives. Uh, third situation is that there's been a catastrophic earthquake in Haiti and there's a major loss of life and destruction and the body of Christ is working to rally already to meet a physical need and to meet spiritual needs. And church, I don't know about you, but when uh, the news and when situations like this mount up, that these are just the types of moments where about all I can pray is come Lord Jesus. Like I'm just so eager to, to see the Lord put an end to all of this. It's so longing for the day when sin and death and destruction are no more. But until that day, what, what's been given to us as the church is to be the light of the gospel, to take the light of the gospel, and to penetrate the darkness of this world. And so here's what we're going to do as we start together our time this morning is I'm going to lead us in prayer, and I'm going to ask you as I'm praying, I want to invite you to agree. You know, that word amen that we use, it's a statement of agreement. What we're saying when we say amen is, yes, Lord, let it be so. As it's been stated, let it be done according to your will. And I know we're, we're maybe not the most loud, boisterous, expressive church. We're more of like a mm, church. You know what I'm talking about? Like we have deep emotions that we feel in our bones and that's okay too. And so you feel free man, to, to amen or to grunt or to mm, whatever it is. But I want to invite you, all of us as one body, we're going to agree together in prayer. If you're comfortable, man, you, you just pray out loud where you are sitting right there in your seats. We're going to lift up our voices um, together to the Lord for the church, both here at home uh, and, and abroad. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. 
Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We make mention of his righteousness only. We plead his obedience and suffering. We recognize that we do not come before you with any merit of our own, but only by what has been given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you not just as people who have sinned, but as sinners who were in need of rescue and redemption and forgiveness. And we thank you that through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that has been given to us so that we can come boldly and confidently before your throne, not as slaves in fear before a master, but as children in confidence to a father. And so we come to you, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I, I particularly lift up those uh, who are in this room and those who are in our community today who are on the front lines of healthcare, Lord. We pray that you would give them supernatural strength and energy to accomplish the work that you have given them to do. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice that they make day in and day out. Lord, as, as many of us have, have just moved on with life and forgotten what it is that they, they struggle with on an ongoing basis, Lord, would we remember them in prayer? Father, will you guard their hearts against, against cynicism and against anger, that even in the midst of great difficulty, they could be a light for Jesus Christ in the midst of very difficult work. Would you sustain them and strengthen them, lift up their arms. Father, I pray that you would silence the voices of ignorance that cloud them right now. Father, that you would guard and protect them, that you would be a shield about them, Lord, that they would carry out their work with diligence and that you would protect them and provide for them each day the energy and the strength that they need to do what you've given them to do. Father, I pray for your church here in the United States. Lord, we, we just come to you, Father, this morning, and we confess that in so many ways we have allowed our interests to be divided. Father, that sometimes we, we give you only superficial attention. Lord, that sometimes you are only a footnote to everything else that's happening. Father, we confess that we have allowed ourselves to be consumed by so much of what's unfolded in the last 18 months and that it's robbed our vision of you. And so, Father, we ask you this morning in faith, will you penetrate the darkness of our hearts and reveal yourself to us today? Help us to deal honestly with sin. Father, help us to put down secondary debates. Help us to put down fruitless arguments. Help us to put away superficial disagreements so that your body, the church, could be united as one, that the scared world would see a fearless church armed with the message of the gospel and relentlessly pursuing your glory to the ends of the earth. Father, we lift up right now brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Lord, it's not lost on us that as we gather here in freedom and safety, they gather under the threat of their lives. And so, Father, we pray, as the disciples prayed in the book of Acts this morning, we pray for their boldness, Lord. God, give them boldness and give them courage. We pray that you would be their shield. We pray that you would be their deliverer, that you would be their protector, that you would be their provider, that even in the face of immense desperation and threats of death, or that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted. Father, protect them, Lord. We pray for those, the, the guardians and the defenders who will go before them to protect them from evil. We pray that your swift hand of justice would be accomplished through them. Lord, we lift up brothers and sisters in Christ in Haiti this morning. Father, whose communities and whose homes have been decimated and destroyed, we pray that even in the midst of great darkness, the light of the gospel would penetrate and come through, that your church and your people would be sustained, that resources would be provided. 
God, we plead on their behalf this morning and ask that you would encourage them and lift up their spirits and give them faith and give them confidence and give them boldness that you have not forgotten them. Lord, your word promises that you are near to the brokenhearted and you saved, that you saved the crushed in spirit. So Lord, I pray for all today who are burdened that you would be near and that you would save. So Father, help us to keep them close in our hearts. Help us to remember them in prayer. And Lord, our hearts long for the day when sin will be no more when death will be no more, when destruction will be no more, when sickness will be no more. And to that we say, come Lord Jesus. But until then, Lord, would you fill us with the power of your spirit? Make us bold, make us courageous. Let us truly be your hands and feet in this world as we proclaim your gospel to the ends of the earth. And Father, now guide us through your word. Open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see you and your beauty and your glory and your holiness. Help us to deal honestly with our sinfulness as we come into the presence of a holy God. Speak to us today through your word. Help us to see a vision of you. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let it be so. And so let's continue uh, to lift them in prayer uh, even as we go from here today. All right. So Isaiah chapter six is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, picking up where we left off from last week, we're going to jump right into things this morning. I'm just going to ask you are, you, are you awake today? Because we're going zero to 100 real quick here, here in just a second. Isaiah six, I don't say this often, but if you weren't here last week, you really just need to go back online and either listen or watch to get caught up to speed. We're in a four week message series called I saw the Lord. Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, Isaiah 6.1 says he caught a vision of the Lord. And so we're spending four weeks just immersing ourselves in that vision. And what we see is this, uh, what we're going to do is break this vision into four distinct parts. Last week, we saw a, a glimpse of God's holiness. Today, we're going to see a look at our sinfulness. Next week, we'll see God's mercy. And then the last week, we'll see God's mission. And as we do this across four weeks, what you find in the book of Isaiah is, is that, man, it just unfolds beautifully uh, to show us the message of the gospel in four distinct movements of God, man, Christ, and response. So last week we looked at who is God and we saw that he's holy. Uh, King Uzziah had led the people of Judah to several decades of economic, adverse, or, uh, economic prosperity and national growth. But as the nation had grown strong, worship had grown cold. As the nation grew strong, Uzziah grew proud. And later in his life, he had a breach of faithfulness. He went into the place of worship and he made an unauthorized offering. He did something that only the priests were supposed to do. Uh, and when he was confronted about this, instead of responding in repentance, he responded in arrogance. And, and we talked very briefly last week that unfortunately is true all through the New Testament. It continues to be true today. As goes the leader spiritually, so go the people. That was true for God's people. It remains true for us today. Uzziah's critical error in spite of a legacy of faithfulness. Second Chronicles 26 says that he was a good king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but his legacy in spite of his faithfulness is that late in life, he had a breach of holiness and his critical mistake was that he trivialized the holiness of God. And we tend to follow our leaders straight into this trivialization of God's holiness. We continue to do this today. Man, man you, you see it all the time, how we'll have elected officials, people running for office, they will quote the Bible wildly out of context. I mean, pick and choose its truth based on whatever their platform has to say, hold it up for photo ops, and we think the Lord is just totally cool with this. That's God's man right there. 
an absolute trivialization of the holiness of God. And we think the Lord God Almighty, who is holy, 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 the whole earth being full of his glory, is just totally cool with it. Told you, zero to 100 today. Like, we think he's just totally fine with this. And so the people, they followed Uzziah into that trivialization of God's holiness. So even while the nation was strong, worship was cold. Their worship was, was impersonal. It was just empty and stale. And it was just a going through the motions and checking the boxes. And it was in this year that Uzziah died. It was in that context that Isaiah saw the Lord. We saw last week that the first glimpse Isaiah had into the Lord is that he is seated in transcendent majesty. He is just simply above everything. And we see that he's surrounded by the seraphim. They're these uh, weird kind of fiery angelic beings and they're calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So that's Isaiah's initial glimpse of the Lord. And then we talked about how those who have seen the Lord live and act differently than those who have not seen the Lord. So when we get to Isaiah chapter seven and chapter eight, uh, uh, when Ahaz is king, we see that there's this threat of the Syrians and the Ephraimites coming together and they're planning and plotting to attack the people of Judah. And, and the rumors of this just consumed the people's lives. Isaiah 7 says that they were shaken as a tree is shaken by the wind. So it consumed their thoughts and it consumed their conversation. They lived in constant paranoia and panic and fear of this potential threat that could come overtake, overtake them. And so the Lord tells Isaiah though in chapter 8, he says, you're not going to be like them. You're not gonna run around crying conspiracy and obsessing conspiracy as everybody else obsesses conspiracy. He says, you're gonna fear someone, you fear me. We're gonna walk in the fear and the reverence and the holiness of God. And I just challenged this last week because man, what has happened, especially the last two years is man, some of you guys, Satan has just taken you totally out of the game totally out of the game. He's got us consumed with threats, some of them real, some of them imagined, totally diverting our attention away from Jesus in such a way that we no longer have a vision of the Lord. And how, if we're going to, to truly see the Lord and how the world, if the world's truly gonna see the Lord through us, that authentic worship begins with an all-consuming vision of the holiness of God. People who have seen the Lord are not consumed by the world because they've been consumed in worship. So that's what we saw last week is the gateway to authentic worship. And what we're going to see this morning, what, what we see through the example of Isaiah is, is that the revelation of God's holiness reveals the depths of our sinfulness. Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord. He sees that he is holy and he immediately recognizes that he is not. The revelation of God's holiness reveals the depths of our sinfulness. And that's what we become aware of as we come into his presence. And so we're going to read uh, together again, Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight. Um, I challenged you last week to memorize this over the next few weeks and to spend a uh, substantial time meditating on this. That we want to we enter into this space uh, in the same way that Isaiah has unfolded it for us here in these several verses. So I'm going to read Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight. Uh, and then we're going to focus today primarily on verses four and five. So Isaiah six, uh, let's read together verse one here. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. This is God's word. So Isaiah comes into the presence of a holy God and his immediate realization is that he is not a holy man. He comes into the presence of God's holiness and it immediately reveals the depths of his sinfulness. So verse four, we see the seraphim calling out to one another and the decibel level of this just shakes the foundations of the temple. The entire temple's filled with smoke. So to Isaiah, the manifest presence of God is really as terrifying as it is beautiful. I mean, his, his initial feeling here is not one of comfort and oh, that's nice. And this is just an overwhelming vision he's seeing. We see this elsewhere in scripture, uh, Exodus chapter 19, how the glory of the Lord appears as fire above Mount Sinai and there's, uh, the, the sky is filled with smoke how his voice comes booming down in thunder. Similar picture in Revelation chapter four that you see around the throne of God, there's thunder and there's lightning and there's fire and there's smoke. Uh, there's this full display of the glory of God through the example of Jesus in Mark chapter four, when he calms the storm. You, you read the story, there's a bad storm and uh, Jesus is asleep. The disciples wake him up and he talks to the weather and it listens to him. I mean, just the fullness of his glory on display. And what is the response and the reaction of his disciples when this happens? It doesn't say they were happy about it. It says they were terrified. They're like, what just happened? Like, who is this man? He talks to the weather. He talks to the wind and the waves and the sea, and it listens. Their thought was not, that was cool. Their thought was like, get us out of this boat. I mean, so, so when the fullness of God's glory is revealed in scripture, it's not typically initially a very comforting feeling. So again, all due respect to mercy me, we don't only have to imagine what it's like in his presence. Scripture's littered with these examples. People come into the presence of the Lord and it's about the feeling you get when you jump into the water with a great white shark. It's overwhelming and it's terrifying. And this is what Isaiah sees as he comes in because he, he's immediately overwhelmed by the holiness of God and it reveals the depth and the magnitude of his sin. When people encounter the glory of the Lord, the initial feeling isn't comfort, it's terror. It's a sense of unworthiness. It's a sense of not belonging. And so Isaiah, right away, he sees the Lord. He is holy. He is exalted. He is high. He is lifted up. He's transcendent. And so what we learn right away from Isaiah's vision, listen, this God's not gonna fit in a box. This God's not gonna fit neatly in our definitions and our doctrinal statements and our theological categories. He is far going to supersede and transcend even the wildest thoughts of our imagination. This is really kind of the paradox of scripture is that people are desperate to see the Lord, but they almost can't stand it when they do. He's overwhelming. He's overpowering, he's immense, he's infinite, he's transcendent. His glory is as haunting as it is heavenly and it's as terrible as it is beautiful. Isaiah stands in terror of his holiness because it exposes his wickedness. He comes in the presence of the Lord and his first response is, woe is me for I am lost. So we see first this morning from verse five that sin deserves ultimate destruction. Sin deserves ultimate destruction. As Isaiah encounters the glorious presence of the three times holy God, he becomes painfully aware of his own unworthiness and inadequacy and we see him make several statements here. 
He's saying, woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, um, you have like a hobby or an activity or something that you like to do that you, you sometimes think of yourself as, as pretty good at it, decent at it, but then you, you pair alongside someone who's like an expert at the same thing and it just makes you feel totally inadequate, okay? Um, I've shared before, man, I, I love to play golf, but I'm not good at golf, okay? It's a very uh, humbling, sanctifying experience for me. Um, every single time. Golf's an unforgiving game. And so several guys on our staff and elder team, that this is one of the ways we like to just have fun and hang out is playing golf together. And most of us are not very good except for Michael Morrison. Whatever Michael tells you, it's a lie. He's really good. He's telling you he's not that good so he can hustle you and take your money, okay? That's, don't, don't, don't listen to that joker when he says he's not that good. So we'll be playing golf, man. And we'll be, you know, out in the fairway. I'm hitting like my third or fourth shot. You know, Michael's been waiting on us for about 15 minutes because, of course, his landed right in the middle of the fairway. And it's time for him to take a shot, you know, perfect stroke and he'll land it about 10 feet away from the pin and we're all like oh Michael that was a great shot and he's like Ugh. he's like it didn't didn't fade the way I wanted it to it's like I was trying to land it over here and I landed over here didn't quite get the roll that I wanted we're like brother when you're playing with us you don't get to complain about that shot well like, you go whine about it in your diary later tonight that's an awesome shot and, and so, you know, every time I play golf with Michael, I get back in the car, I'm like, man, I quit. Like, I just, I just don't even want to do this anymore. It's not fun because every time I play with him, it just feels like it reveals my inadequacy. And that's the overwhelming sense that Isaiah has in the presence of the Lord. It's just perfect perfection. It's total holiness. And his sinfulness has no hope in the light of this glory. He's completely overwhelmed and he's overpowered. And we see him make five distinct statements. The first statement he makes is, woe is me. Now, we studied uh, Matthew chapter 23. Many of you remember back in the spring where Jesus pronounces several woes against the scribes and the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of his day. A woe is a statement of, of condemnation or destruction that's pronounced and born out of a deep sense of grief. But Isaiah in this moment, he's not pronouncing the woe against anyone else. He's pronouncing it against himself. It's like, I don't belong here. My sinfulness in comparison to that holiness, I, I don't belong here. The only thing I deserve right now, it, it's destruction. I am woefully inadequate to be standing in the presence of a holy God. He, he comes face to face, unfiltered with the holiness of God, and his initial response is, kill me or get me out of here. Let destruction come upon me. That's what I deserve because he's aware of his sinfulness. Second statement he makes is, I am lost. This can also translate, I'm undone or I'm cut off. So even though Isaiah is in the presence of the Lord, the Lord's holiness is so transcendent that the gap between he and the Lord feels eternal and impossible to cross over. God is so other, he is so above, he is so distinct, he is so separate from us that even in his presence, Isaiah felt like it was a chasm that was impossible to cross. And then comes confession. He says, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is his third statement. So unlike the seraphim, you guys remember those guys from last week, little thermonuclear angelic celestial beings, you know, they've got six wings and just overpowering. I mean, just a terrifying presence. He says, unlike the seraphim who worship the Lord with powerful voices, even the seraphim, these holy beings, they covered their faces and their feet in the presence of a holy God. Even the seraphim humbled themselves. And Isaiah's recognized that, like, I, I'm not like them. I've not taken seriously the holiness of God. I don't have this exuberant worship in light of the holiness of God. But it's not just him, it's the nation. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
So Isaiah's sin wasn't unique to him. The people of Judah as a whole had grown numb and indifferent to the Lord. In his fifth statement, he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ray Ortland has a great reflection on this passage uh, talking about Isaiah here. He says, for the first time, he, this is Isaiah, sees that he's typical of his generation, whose faith was unthinking and glib. It was just thoughtless checking the box, going through the motions. Their mouths were not filled with seraphic worship, but with flippant repetitions and self-justifying excuses. But now Isaiah sees himself because he sees God. And something new is entering his heart, humility. Isaiah's completely come to the end of himself. In the presence of a holy God, he's become completely undone, and finally the excuses melt away. There's no more minimizing. There's no more rationalizing. There's no trivializing. He recognizes his sin for what it is. In the blinding light of God's glory and holiness, every subatomic particle of the darkness of his heart has been exposed in the light of his glory. He knows that there's no hiding. He sees the beauty and majesty and holiness and perfection of God. And he finally and fully comes to grips with the severity and reality of his sin because sin is severe. R.C. Sproul, his classic book, The Holiness of God, which I'd encourage you to, to check out, just a, a classic that I think everyone should read. He's written, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at even the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. You know, sometimes we wrestle with that because you know, all of us at some point in time have probably wrestled with the eternal consequence and nature of sin because to us in our flesh, the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime. We don't see sin as a cosmic treasonous act against an infinitely holy God, but Isaiah does. We see through the example of Isaiah that even the most subtle of sins is deserving and worthy of God's ultimate destruction. So we asked the question this morning, well, what was Isaiah's sin? What was his sin? He said he was a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, but what does that really mean? Well, to say that they were people of unclean lips, it was to speak to the emptiness of their worship. It was to speak to the superficiality of their faith. The, the fake pretense and the outward display of religion and worship that they were putting on to hide the fact that their hearts were dead. So, so follow me here, church, this morning, because this is so important for us to see. God's wrath against Isaiah and Isaiah's sin. Isaiah's sin was not the false worship of a pagan God. Isaiah's sin was the empty worship of a holy God. Let me say that one more time because we don't need to miss that today. Isaiah's sin was not the false worship of a pagan God. His sin was the empty worship of a holy God. You know, we, we sometimes will look at other religious systems, you know, maybe even more animistic cultures, and we'll kind of mock the idea of people, you know, pray into a little wooden statue or a golden figure, and, and we just look at that, we're like, well, man, that's all empty, that's not going anywhere, but, but listen, according to the example that we see from Isaiah, when you and I come in this place, 
And we just kind of check the box. We just kind of go through the motions. We're unthinking. We're thoughtless in our worship. According to God's word, that's no different than sitting in your closet this morning, burning incense to a little wooden statue. It's all wickedness in the eyes of God. I mean, church, think about this. Which one is worse? Is it offering wholehearted worship to a false God or or offering half-hearted worship to the true God? And some of us, man, that's where we land right now. I mean, like Isaiah, like we we just are going to have to confess. We're going to have to come to grips with the fact that our worship hasn't been real so that it can become real. And we can't suppress this. We can't minimize this. He comes into the presence of the Lord and he immediately recognizes the severity of his sin. He recognizes his sin of empty praise, of superficial faith, of empty, dead, dry, worthless worship. And he has to confess it before the Lord. And he recognizes that that sin is worthy of ultimate destruction. Second, this morning, we see that sin requires honest confession. So it's worthy of ultimate destruction. And second, it requires honest confession. Here's his confession. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So he just calls it what it is. He's he's saying here, our worship, Lord, hasn't been real. We have trivialized your holiness. We have trifled with holy things and not taken them seriously. Trivialize the holiness of God. We, our hearts have grown cold. Our hearts have grown hard. Our hearts have grown dull. Our hearts have grown numb. We're just going through the motions. And then the Lord's indictment against the people, it comes in Isaiah 29. It's mentioned by Jesus again in Matthew chapter 15. It still applies to us today. His indictment is this. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Don't miss this, church. The problem for the people of Judah, the problem for Isaiah, it wasn't not having orthodox faith. And this is some of the most deceiving work that Satan does. Man, we can be orthodox to the T. Sound doctrine, good theology, solid biblical teaching, rigid religious practice, strict adherence to every letter of the law, heads full of Bible, hearts far from Jesus. You can check all those boxes and still perish for eternity in hell because our hearts are far from him. And this was the sin of Isaiah. This was the sin of the people. Again, go back to where we were last week, to chapter one, to the point that the Lord said, listen, just stop worshiping me because it's not worship. Stop offering me your song. Stop offering me your praise. It's okay, you check the boxes, you go through the motions, he said, but you're not dealing with the sin that's in your own hearts. He says, iniquity and solemn assembly, I cannot tolerate. It's a translation for us. It's like, great, we check the box for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. What happens the rest of the week? Where do we go with this? Their hearts had grown cold and dull and numb and their faith was superficial. It was all fake in the eyes of the Lord. Church, I think this is such an important word for us today because because for me in our culture, I, I believe that this is where we are. I mean, this is exactly where we find ourselves. We have allowed the political and cultural tone of our nation to shape the actions and decisions of the church. We've allowed this to infiltrate. We've mingled our faith with unholy things. And now we're reaping the consequences of this. There's no vision of God. There's no vision of his holiness. There's no vision of his glory. That There is no captivating image of a transcendent God who is above and beyond all things. And, and this has happened in our nation. And, and sadly, you know, the way that many in our culture today have tried to remedy this emptiness of worship is through the manufacturing of experience. And so this is kind of the playbook in a lot of circles today. It's like, well, well true worship, we can get the people truly worshiping. Let's, let's get the room just right. 
Let's get the lights just right. Let's get the temperature just right. Let's get the band just right. Let's get the songs just right. And that will elicit true worship. Listen, there's a difference between true worship and just getting worked up into an emotional frenzy. We need to recognize that. We need to be discerning of this. And listen, I'm not hating on worship styles. That's completely amoral. It's not wrong to have those elements. It's not right to have those elements. Here's where it becomes problematic is by thinking that through somehow getting environment right, we're somehow gonna elicit true worship. Church, God is not gonna be mocked. We cannot manufacture and manipulate a movement of the Holy Spirit. We only experience true spiritual awakening and worship when we have been captivated by a vision of a holy God and when we begin to deal honestly with our sins. You cannot manufacture revival. You cannot manipulate revival. You know, I saw this kind of floating around in the online world this week. They're calling this thing America's revival. And, and I tuned in for a little while. I watched, man, it's just nonsense bunch of regurgitated political talking points with some Bible verses attached to it. Church, God will not be mocked. You want revival? It's not coming through Republicans. It's coming through repentance. You want revival? It's not coming through democratic policies. It's coming through devotion to Jesus Christ. And we have just so thoughtlessly cast repentance and devotion to the side in the name of political expediency. We have trivialized the holiness of God. And we think he's just totally cool with this. Just totally cool with this, that the, the end justifies the means. And we've got to learn to deal honestly with this. We've got to reckon with the fact that we have sinfully mingled our faith with unholy things. And we have allowed the unholiness of our culture and our political landscape to infiltrate the church. And if we expect God to move at all, it's first and foremost going to start with a vision of his holiness and dealing honestly with our sin. There is no revival where there is no repentance. What if we were as eager every single day to quietly behind the scenes, get on our knees and confess our sins to the Lord as we were eager to rush online and publicly confess the sins of everybody else. Then we'd see revival. It doesn't start with fixing them. It starts with fixing me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Lord, our worship is empty and it's cold and it's dry and it's monotonous. And we're just checking the box. We're just going through the motions. And we recognize that this grieves your heart. So, so what do we do with all this today? We've got to move uh, quickly here just to close up. What's, what's our response? Well, first, it begins with dealing with sin seriously. We have to deal seriously with sin. Within Christian subculture, we've really seen, especially over the last 10 years, just a very deadly trivialization of sin recently in our time. And this trivialization is something that's not just tolerated, it's celebrated. So uh, someone who rose to prominence several years ago, in the Christian blogosphere was a woman named Glennon Doyle. So she was married, had three kids, and was writing encouraging online content and uh, sort of gained a reputation through this. But where she really made headlines was several years ago when she announced uh, that she was leaving her husband of 14 years. She was going to be uh, marrying a woman. And uh, her book, uh, Untamed, became a New York Times bestseller. And during this, she uh, really lays out her story of what's become more widely known as deconstruction. You know, those who grew up within the church then kind of go through this process of unlearning. And it's listen, this is a different sermon for a different day. You need to be extremely wary of someone who uses the name of Jesus to build, that, to build a platform and then uses that platform to renounce the name of Jesus as their new platform. You need to be very, very cautious of somebody who, who this happened with Joshua Harris again this past week, man. You, you got to be extremely cautious of someone who uses the name of Jesus to either build a platform or use a platform to denounce the name of Jesus, because ultimately it just keeps them at the center. 
and they see themselves as a solution. So this book really details just her story of deconversion, how she had to go through this whole process of, of unlearning uh, everything about sex and gender and marriage and the Bible and family in pursuit of her own path to happiness. And this has uh, become a really popular line from the book. What I'm about to read to you is not satire. This is a, a popular line from the book. She's reflecting on the actions of Eve in Genesis chapter three, uh, when she rebels against the Lord and eats the fruits of the garden. She says, maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting, eat the apple. I mean, literally just repeating the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3. Yeah, go ahead and eat that. It's not going to kill you. You'll become like God. You'll discover your true self. You'll find happiness. You'll be just like him. Literally repeating the lie of the serpent, and this is being repackaged and sold as acceptable, faithful, holy Christianity in the sight of God. Alyssa Childers in the Gospel Coalition wrote a really helpful follow-up to this. I'd encourage you to find this whole article online. She writes, Doyle offers a counterfeit freedom that emancipates readers from right and wrong, objective truth, the Bible, and Christianity. But it'll only enslave them to another master, sin. For the Christian, true freedom isn't apprehended by relying on your inner voice, which can misguide you or change on a dime. It's found by looking deep inside yourself, dying to the sinner you meet there, and turning to Christ. Freedom means trusting in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. It doesn't justify you to indulge sin, but liberates you from its power. You realize that to be freed from slavery to sin is to become a slave of God. One master leads to death, the other to eternal life. Listen, we just saw this in our gospel reading earlier this morning, that this is the, the cost of following Jesus. Jesus does not say, hey, discover yourself and then come to me and that's going to be fine. He says, no, you're going to come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross. You die to yourself. You die to your sinful desires. You die to your sinful and selfish ambitions. And then you follow me. We read it this morning. He says, you're, you're going to come after me. Your love for the things of this world, even family and, and material things, man, it needs to look like hate compared to our love for him. There should be no comparison. It's costly. Following Jesus will cost us everything. Listen to me. Because I love you, I'm going to say this. Because I love you. This is a little bit heavy, but, it, but it's important, and you need to hear this this morning. If the Jesus you have found is freeing you to sin and not freeing you from sin, then you have not found the real Jesus. On the authority of God's word, you are still dead in your sins. You need to repent, to turn, to cease from your sin, walk away from your sin, call in faith on the name of Jesus Christ, claim his perfect life, death, and resurrection, receive that in faith as your own, and stand in victory over sin. Listen, grace is not our permission slip to sin. Grace is the power to be free from sin. And God has given this to us. And listen, this is where we need the rest of the passage this morning. Again, what we're doing in these weeks is we're focusing on just different elements of this passage. So this is where we need the rest of the verses here uh, in Isaiah chapter six. I'm gonna read uh, down to verse seven. It says here that, uh, excuse me, verses six and seven says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is powerful here. Because what we learn through the actions of the seraphim and what we see through the example of Isaiah 
is that God's holiness is not meant to harm us. It's meant to help us. He comes to the Lord. His sin is revealed. He confesses his sin. Pay attention. He is not met with holy wrath. He's met with holy mercy. Your sin has been taken away. Your guilt, it's all been atoned for. It's all been paid through faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, it's, it's difficult, hard, messy work, but we have to take our sin seriously. We see second, that we've got to name sin specifically. This is what Isaiah does. He names his sin. His sin was dead, cold, lifeless worship. He didn't call it anything other than what it was. So again, again, some of us today, man, when it comes to confession, it's about sins of rebellion, ways that we've run away from God's word. For others of us, maybe even more of us, it's confessing sins of religion. Worship's cold. My heart's dry. It's superficial. It's fake. It's not real. It's been monotonous. It's been thoughtless, Lord. It's been disconnected from my heart. I know it in my head, but I don't believe it in my heart. So we have to name our sin. We have to call it what it is. We name it specifically. And listen, like Isaiah, no more minimizing, no more rationalizing, no more justifying, no more, well, that's just the way I am. No more, well, that's just my family heritage. No more, that's just my Enneagram number. No more, that's just something I need to work on. No, we we call our sin what it is and we specifically name it for what it is and we address it head on. And then last, we see that we confess sin honestly. We confess it honestly. Isaiah calls it what it is, and he lays it bare before the Lord. He doesn't try to pretend. His immediate response is to confess to the Lord what he and the people had done, and he knew that there was no hiding. And listen, here is the reality. Confession can be terrifying. I mean, it it never seems to be easy, but this is what we're promised in confession. Well, you'll hear me say this almost, almost every single week, right before we take communion. It's the assurance of pardon from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, so the the condition here is if, this is conditional. If we will confess our sins, who is the Lord? He is faithful and just to do what, church? To forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But that work of confession, it doesn't just happen before the Lord. It's the Lord who grants repentance. It's the Lord who grants forgiveness of sins. But there's also healing that happens in the confession with one another. There's healing work that happens. So if we come to the Lord, this is what James 5 tells us. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. Our elder team, we uh, met just a couple weeks ago, Monday night. We're reading this book called Gospel Eldership. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. It is kicking our tails right now. First four chapters just really uh, focuses on character and uh, just dealing honestly with sins in our hearts. The book just asks those really deep, penetrating questions that you really wish it wouldn't ask. You know what I'm talking about? Like it forces you into the conversations that you really don't want to have. And man, here's the leaders of your church two weeks ago. We're sitting around the table. You know what we're doing? We're confessing sin to one another. Confessing areas of failure, confessing areas of struggle. And listen, it's hard. It's not comfortable, but guess what? It heals. It heals. The Lord is faithful and he is just. He will cleanse us of all sin. He'll forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's messy, but it's good. Listen, that's what he invites us into today. The the reality is all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us, we just can't stand in the light of his holiness. But the good news of the gospel church is that Jesus is way better at saving than you and I are at sinning. He's so much better. We'll sing it in just a moment, how our sins were many. What was his mercy? It was more. It was infinitely more.
he's faithful and he's just. He asked the question, listen, if he's perfectly holy and he's just, how is it that my sin can just be pushed to the side? Well, well, here's the reality. Somebody did pay for your sin. It just wasn't you. I shared this with you a few months back, but I love this from Tim Keller. He, He said that at the cross, God's love provided what his justice demanded. His holiness and his justice demands perfection. Bad news, you and I don't have that. Good news, Jesus does. And God in his love, he provided the perfection that his justice demanded. That's been provided for you today. For all who will come to him and confess our sins, repent of our sins, he's faithful, he's just, and he'll forgive. And so I just wanna encourage you to bow your heads with me here for just a moment. Listen, there's no sin so wicked, no sin so egregious, so awful, even so recent that if you confess it to him in faith, that it can't be eviscerated in the light of his holiness. Our sin is no match for his grace and mercy. And so listen, I've read our our reflective scriptures this morning for communion. So I I just wanna let it sit here for just a moment. Take a moment just to confess your sin before the Lord. Come to him in honesty. Maybe sins of rebellion, maybe sins of religion. Let's call our sin what it is and lay it at his feet today as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. So Father, we thank you that through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we can come to you honestly with our sin, that we can lay them at your feet and that we are not met with your wrath, we are met with your mercy. We're met with forgiveness and kindness and acceptance through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. So we come to this table this morning to remember, to reflect, to respond, to be reminded of what he's accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Father, let our worship glorify you. Don't let us do this thoughtlessly or carelessly. We reflect on the work of your cross today. Thank you that we've been raised to new life through faith in Jesus. We celebrate that now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen.